We are in the last part of the church series, looking at our story, finding our roots, seeing where we've come from. We're at the last part. We're going to hit the present. So where are we going to go? So we will eventually be in 1 John chapter 1, but um, it won't be for some time. So a certain man had two sons in his family. The youngest came to the dinner table in a mood that Thanksgiving evening. And as everyone worked on the gravy and the cranberry sauce and the turkey, the youngest son waited till there was a pause in the table conversation. And he said, Father, that which you owe me in your will, I want now. There was a collective gasp across the table. No one says that to the patriarch of the family. No one asks, give me what you will give me when you die now. And yet this son, surly, moody, folds his arms and waits for the response, defiant against whatever his father's will may be. Well, everyone, of course, looks at the father who just leans back, closes his eyes, and swallows the turkey he'd been chewing and then says, all right. And it took just the next day. This kid could not wait to leave to go join the good life. And so there he goes, loaded with money. And he drives far away until he feels far enough away that his parental influence is no longer there anymore. And then he plops down in this land. Some pretty girls here, some pretty cool guys here that I want to be associated with, some pretty nice homes, gated community. I like this place. And there he begins to spend his money. He gets the house with not just a jacuzzi, but a jacuzzi the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So he can have all his pals there. He gets the biggest flat screen TV he can find. He begins to hire people to decor his house. He then begins to host the parties. And he, time goes on. Weekend after weekend, he spends just spending more and more to impress people, to gain the favor of people. The drinks go through. The food goes through. And he even, well, he sleeps around quite a lot with whoever happens to be the lucky lady that weekend. But then one day, he tried to pay a bill and the check bounced. And then the debtors followed. And then he began to lose things. And then he began to have to find an hourly job washing dishes at the back of some hole-in-the-wall kitchen. And then he was not even making ends meet then. And he was hungry. And he was miserable. And he was depressed. And he was bored with life. And he felt like he had ruined everything. And then it hit him. Wait a minute. Even the servants at my father's house live better than I do. 
I'm going to go. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I did everything wrong. I was young, ignorant, proud, and rebellious. Uh, I see the error of my ways now. I want to return and even just be a slave for you as long as I can be near the plot of ground here that our family inhabits. So the son begins to go back, walks, maybe a few Uber rides, but he walks most of the way because he doesn't have much money. And when he was still a long way off, the father saw, recognized, despite the shaggy, disheveled look of his son, recognized his son, and tore off in a sprint to receive him. And there was crying, and there was laughing, and there was joy, and the son knelt down at his father's feet and began to give his little spiel of confession. And the father said, I don't care what you have to say, you're here. And he begins to shout to his servants, let's party. Get that thing I've been saving for now. And they go and they begin eating. And there's the music and the DJ comes over and there's dancing and there's fun. And everybody's celebrating that this son who was dead is now alive, was lost, is now found, who had abandoned the family, has now decided that he still belongs to this family. And so everyone celebrated as one happy family. Almost. Outside was the other son, the older son. And he sees what's going on. And he sits on the bench outside underneath the tree, pops open a soda, and starts sipping and having a pity party. Puts his feet up and thinks, well, maybe someone will come get me. And true to the father's love, the father notices his son isn't there. Wait a minute. The family is reunited. So the father goes to seek out the older son, finds him sitting there, sort of in the similar mood that the younger son was at the beginning of the story. Things have turned he says, why aren't you inside eating and celebrating? Because I have been here. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have paid my own way. I am getting an education. I am going to work. I obey your values and your rules. And I am keeping to everything you want me to be. I am doing everything I can be to be the ideal perfect son. And this Son of yours, no brother to me, goes and wastes every. He insults you. He shames our family. He squanders his inheritance. And then he comes back and you throw a party for him? Not, not even 30 lashes? Not even you're grounded? Not even you got to pay this back to me in time with interest? None of that? You just welcome him back? That's why I'm out here. The whole time the father just... Stared at the ground, sad that his son can't see how much he loves both of them. Well, son, we will always welcome you in. I'm going to go back because this is a day to celebrate. Your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. He left the family. He's returned to the family. We don't know what happens to that son Jesus tells that story and just stops right there. We're left on the cliffhanger of, does the son change his mind? Does he come into the party? Does he stay in his little miserable pity party? 
There are a group of people, they make up 22% of the population in America and Europe. It's almost a quarter. It's almost one in every four people that affiliate with a religious affiliation known as the nuns. Now, the nuns is not the convent of women who call each other sisters and take the vow of celibacy and meditate and pray and do good acts of work. Um, Not those nuns. These are the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, as in none of the above. And they are they who circle none of the above when asked, which religion do you affiliate with? Almost one in four say none. So they've been called the nuns. A really horrible name. <laughs> Obviously, if you have to explain a word that it doesn't mean this, it means this. It's a bad start. Um, but second, are these people really nothing? But it's growing. Fastest growing religion in the world. The nuns. Jesus tells the story I told you while he's sitting at a table full of what the religious establishment of the time would have called the nuns. They're nothing. Now, the people at this table would not have necessarily wanted to take on that label. Jesus invited them to his table, or Jesus sat at their table. Either way, they're there. They're communing. They're one. These are the very people whom the religious establishment of Israel stands on the outside looking in with their arms folded, grumbling about how we do everything right. We've done everything the Father wants. We've done everything we can be to be the perfect son. And you are throwing a party for these people? They're the nuns at the table because the religious establishment has made them such. Well, you don't belong with our religion. You don't live right. You don't eat right. You don't play right. So, you're nuns. But Jesus sees the nuns. He sits with them and says, sons, daughters, family. So we're in part five of looking at the church, our story, where we come from, where we started, what's kind of the ups and downs of the journey. Oh man, it's been just a sliver of, off the top, right? I mean, there's so much past 2,000 years of Christianity. Um, we're not even pretending we've done an exhaustive look at this at all. Just, just a little, real quick, like, what can we grasp from this era, from that era? And so in part one, we started with uh, AD 100, when the book of Acts ends, or the book of Revelation is done being written, uh, the last apostle dies, the last of Jesus' original 12 dies. What did the church then do? And so we saw how from 100 to 300 AD, they had a very patient method of reaching out to the pagan empire. Very patient. They were not quick to condemn people. They were not quick to judge society. They accepted it as it was, but slowly allowed relationships to form where they can gradually get the mind and habits of Christ into people and then baptize them into the church. So that there was a very healthy movement that was happening. 
Then in 300 AD, part two, we see that the emperor of the pagan empire, the emperor who always said, I'm a god, you must burn incense to me or suffer persecution or some other retaliation like uh, uh, economic sanctions or something. Um, that emperor <laughs> becomes a Christian. I'm no longer the deity on the throne. I serve another. And his name was Constantine. We don't know exactly if Constantine actually became a Christian, but he said he was one. And so suddenly Christians um, went from these hidden, despicable, very lower class, poor people to the cool kids on the block, to the ones that everybody wanted over to their houses and their mansions and their parties and their social gatherings. Everybody knew Christian all of a sudden. I know one. I know one. I am one now too. The emperor's one. It was the thing to do at the time. And then, of course, the leaders of the church get cozy with the emperor. The emperor gets cozy with them because the empire, the emperor realizes I have to make them happy to keep the empire happy. And they think we have to keep him happy so he doesn't come down hard on us. And this began this long marriage of church and crown working hand in hand, this long affair that perhaps made God's heart break many times to where for the next thousand years, Long after the Roman Empire falls into the dark ages, the middle ages, the medieval times, the church and the crown wreaked horrible destruction. Because the way of Christ, as Jesus said, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. That was the way of Christ. That's never the way of kings. When the church and kings work together, Someone has to give, and usually the king doesn't. And so atrocity, atro- atrocities, some bad stuff happened as a result. And um, finally, the church got very power hungry, and Martin Luther, in part three, um, we're now in 1450 to 1650. We looked at that chunk, those two centuries, sort of the, the Reformation period. Martin Luther was a monk, and he had a revelation that God is not asking us to buy salvation from the church or to do what the church says to be saved, but it's by faith that someone is saved. And Martin Luther had the audacity to challenge the church. Uh, and long series of events, as Pastor Mike showed us, um, Eventually, a movement happens called the Protestant Reformation, which means we're the protesters. That's what the Protestant is. You are Protestants. Um, You're protesting what was then happening in the universal church. So then you have now the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestants. And then we saw in part four, what comes out of this Protestant movement? Well, you have what was once one church giving one interpretation of scripture. Now you have many people saying, they don't tell us what scripture says anymore, so let's figure it out. And now this person says this, and this person says that, and that person says that. And yes, it was a good movement, but it also had this downfall where now there's no actual authority and everyone's saying what they think scripture says. And so now you have denominations forming. He says, we have it right. We have it right. We have it right. And then these denominations uh, throw out their, remember where we talked last week, dogmatism, uh, their dogmas, their, their beliefs that they would fight and die for, that you had to believe to be part of them. And these things got out of control and people got tired of what was going on with dogmatism. So they began to pursue other avenues. Some people sought the spiritualist movement, uh, highlighted by the Quakers, 
where there's an inner light. We just got to follow the inner light. No church structure whatsoever. Just whatever the spirit moves, we do. Others decided, let's just do Bible study. Forget the whole church structure thing. Let's just study the Bible and let's just do that together. And out of that came the Methodist movement and John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Um, And then um, you had the other reaction, rationalism, science, the enlightenment happens. And you have Charles Darwin and a lot of the philosophers from France, like Voltaire and Rousseau, uh, they come up and they start spewing out their ideas that man doesn't need faith and religion to tell him how to live. Your mind is all you need. Think about it. Charles Darwin proposes his view of the world. And ever since, we're still feeling the effects and from which agnosticism and atheism and every kind of other ism you can think of comes out of the period. And then we come to part five uh, tonight. 1945, which is chosen because this is the end of World War II. And World War II really sent the world into a new age. But something we need to look at that happened leading up to this, mostly in America, the Great Awakenings. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards spearheaded one of the greatest thinking minds in the Christian tradition. He spearheaded a movement, a small, he had a very small town, very small congregation, struggled for years. But finally, God began to move on people and they began to grasp that they needed a personal relationship with Jesus. And this began to spread and it hit all 13 colonies. The first great awakening, this revival movement in the 1700s. Which, by the way, gave the colonies in America the first unified uh, consciousness. Hey, we are doing something American, not English. Shortly after was launched the Revolutionary War. Because Americans began to get the sense of, I'm not just a Christian because that's what we are. I'm choosing to be one. Wait, I have choice. Wait, we want to choose to be Americans. Wait, let's go to war with England. Which then after that Revolutionary War led to the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. Charles Finney, a great preacher. And um, through all these outdoor preachings, people began, once again, a revival began happening. Then later, the third Great Awakening, later in that century, the 1800s, you have D.L. Moody, another revivalist preacher, and you see more movement happening. This one got, uh, this one really started getting abolitionist movement going. Let's free slaves. Of course, the Civil War kind of interrupted this Great Awakening. Um, but then we move forward even closer to home, and um, there's um, maybe, historians kind of debate because it's too close to the present, maybe a fourth Great Awakening happened right after World War II. Maybe Billy Graham, maybe Martin Luther King Jr., maybe the Jesus Movement, and then you can also add on to that Calvary Chapel and what happened in Southern California, um, and the hippies, and just this massive, um, what do you want to call it, like migration back to Jesus. Um, We now wonder, and we're asking, so is America going to see a fifth Great Awakening Is there going to be another? Some say it's happening right now. Others say, oh my goodness, look at the world. We need one. Uh, I'm just telling you the story of our Christianity. So don't hear me making sides or points. I'm just telling you the story. You hear that? 
Thank you. Okay. So those that say it's happening right now, we're seeing a movement in which there is an awakening in ideas of things about, hey, you know what? This is a post-World War II world. We're no longer moderns. We're post-moderns. So we have to rethink the faith to fit post-modernism. So a lot of things have been rethought and challenged and questioned and looked back at. Uh, things like the Bible. Forever and ever, the Bible's assumed to just be the authority. What it says, you do. But now there's questioning, is the Bible really inerrant? Maybe there's mistakes in there. Maybe there's things that were made up. Maybe there's things that we're supposed to interpret metaphorically. It's still inspired, but maybe it's not what we, our ancestors thought it was. And then, of course, there's the LGBT movement. And, well, if we took the Bible as a sole authority, of course, the Bible says this is not pleasing to God. Um, but then there are people saying, but, well, but those are different times, and maybe there's a certain context, and maybe this God wants us to do something different. Maybe it's a new reformation happening, and we're supposed to rethink everything. The evil organized religious institution has kind of kept us down, and it's time for us to rebel and revolt and rethink Christianity. Um, this also goes into politics. Um, there's a movement, you know, Christianity's often been associated with republicanism, or, yeah, I guess that's a word. Um, and a lot of them are saying, nope, Democrats are much more godly. At least their ideas are more godly. Um, you have like the climate, um, you know, a movement saying, hey, wait, whoa, we got to take care of our earth because we're destroying it. Uh, there's all these, so you're getting the point, right? Oh, hell, right? Of course, hell's been questioned a lot in recent years. Um, hey, maybe that was something the church kind of just used to kind of keep people under control. The scary hell, maybe it doesn't really exist. Maybe in the end, everybody gets absorbed into the great love of the one God. Um, and of course, uh, borrowing different things from different faiths. Like, this is sort of what we see happening. On one hand, we see people like, um, you've probably heard the name Rob Bell. Um, there's other ones like Brian McLaurin, Erwin McManus, uh, Gregory Boyd. Um, um, well, there's a, there's a list of them. Uh, they're, they're leading this, and people are waking up. They're saying, wow, if that's Christianity, I can buy into that. But then there's us who are saying, we're seeing this, we're like, um, wow, we're just like throwing scripture in the mud. It's got nice stories and fairy tales for us to like reflect on, but um, it's not really our authority. Like, we're looking at that and saying, uh, okay, we need an awakening from whatever that is. <laughs> we need to move this way. And so we see this, this, this tension in the postmodern world. Is, are we supposed to rethink, deconstruct everything, or leave it exactly as we received it? So is there a fifth awakening happening? Is there a new reformation? Is it down the road? History is always the best teacher, isn't it? Not the present. <laughs> so we don't know. Um, but the, what we have seen happening, a part of what's going on is we've seen the megachurch movement where Christianity is trying to put on a product and get as many people to it as possible. So we'll open enormous venues with enormous entertainment and really gifted ideas that kind of tickle the, the, the needs of people. And we'll use these huge places, right? So the church is more visible if we have 10 churches of a thousand people rather than a hundred churches of, I don't know, you do the math. It looks more visible. It was in my head at one point. It, was, it looks more visible like this than it does spread out and like this. 
Um, so there's been that thinking. We've, we've seen that happened in the 80s, the 90s, and it's still going on. But uh, I think what we're starting to see now is people are beginning to get kind of fed up with this like showbiz stuff. And there's a, there's a yearning. We're starting to see a yearning happening to come back to just simple, organic, raw, relational Christianity. And house churches are starting to become popular. They always have been sort of an underground movement, but they're, they're gaining speed and attraction. So we see things, we're, we're on this like wire where like the world is moving so fast. We're not even sure what to accept and reject. Everything just keeps moving at a blinding speed. Sometimes we feel too awake. <laughs> but one of the most um, shocking awakenings that has happened in our era is, of course, World War II. So the thinking brought by Charles Darwin in evolution and Christian, a lot of liberal Christians adopted was, hey, the world's getting better and better. We're making advancements. Look at the quality of life going up. Life expectancy is going up. Uh, mothers aren't losing children and childbirth anymore. We've got the industrial revolution. We're, we're building factories and things. And we have like, people are able to afford more now with transportation where the world's getting smaller. And so this was, they were seeing this and this was happening. Um, but then World War II happens and suddenly everyone has the breath knocked out of them. Who can believe that humans have treated other humans like this? And more shocking and very awakening is the technology, the science, the progress that we were applauding. We saw that as bringing better lifestyle, but now we see that that same progress, technology, and science has brought this kind of devastation. And so now we're uncertain. What do we do with a world that is a two-sided sword that can either benefit immensely or cut terribly? What do we do with that? And then in America, kind of like snoozing through the whole thing. Yeah, that's Europe's problem. We get bombed in Pearl Harbor in 1941, and then we wake up. The famous saying, right? The Japanese saying, we fear we've just awoke a sleeping giant. Yeah, well, there's a great awakening for you. Um, America comes to arms and they join the war. And by 1945, we are largely responsible for ending the Pacific. The Germans kind of fizzled out and that just, it kind of happened. But we ended the Japanese front basically by dropping the most devastating piece of technology the world's ever seen, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. Um, and on... Nawazaki. And the world was stunned. And I don't think the world will ever be the same again. What humanity can do just terrified humanity. And so now we're looking at that and we're in this new era of the world. We are in the nuclear age. Fortunately, only two bombs are dropped. But we live constantly from the Cold War with Russia to, I guess, if we want to say another Cold War right now with North Korea, we're living in this constant tension of we know who has the big guns. And we know that there are some ambitious leaders with their fingers hovering just over the red button. And we live in a world fully aware of the potential of it ending in an instant. 
This has changed us psychologically and spiritually. And it may have affected you. It may be affecting your children. Um, It's affecting humans. One writer talks about it. Henry Nouwen explains the nuclear age, what it's done to humans. It's done three things to us. First, it's caused a paralyzing present that we live in a paralyzing present. What that means is we are not sure what the future holds. We're not even sure if there is a future. We are living day to day, trying to make present decision after present decision as if we are a bow without a string from which the arrow can shoot. So we're paralyzed. The, the, the arrow can't go forward. We're just paralyzed And because of that, we feel like passive victims of an overly complex technological bureaucracy. Yeah? We feel like the world is so complex and so big and powerful, like we're just passive victims in it. So what do we do? We shut down and we decide, well, I'll just kind of cruise along and we're apathetic and we're bored. (laughs) We have more to do than any other era in history more access to things than anyone has ever dreamed, and yet we are bored and apathetic. We have the ability to change the world, and yet mm, we're paralyzed by a present because that's all we feel we have. We're living in a non-history. So there's this paralyzing present. Then there's the bite-sized beliefs. What we see in the world since World War II is not an overarching belief system that people adhere to and apply in every situation of life. We see people saying, I believe in that and that and that little bite-sized samples of different ideologies. And in every moment to moment, we apply that belief to that moment. This situation calls for that belief. This situation calls for that belief so that we live in an unending decision-making. Basically, we're making life up on the spot, hour by hour, decision by decision. Most humans don't live with an overarching, we already know what we're doing in these cases because this is what we know of the world. No. Instead, moment by moment, bite-sized beliefs because we're looking at a phenomenal age where we see a man walking on the moon. We're trying to send people, humans, to Mars. We're going to other planets and we can't end war on our own planet this, this is friction here. How can we do that but not this? How can we spend thousands of dollars and have amazing doctors and technology and surgeons to do a heart transplant to save one life, and yet all we can do is stand off and hopelessly watch people starve in other countries? How, how is this happening? This is the world. This is the modern, well, I guess postmodern world where we are conflicted with how are these things possible. So all we can do is grasp what we understand of this and that because we have no overarching belief system anymore. We don't even know what to do with it. So humans live hour to hour choosing their belief system at that moment. That's how you can see people living. I'm a Christian. I go to church, and I believe, but I have no problem with this lifestyle outside of church. Because to them, it makes sense. This is how we cope with a very confusing and complex nuclear world. And then, so we have the paralyzing present, we have the bite-sized beliefs, and finally we have the feudal future. Uh, humans in a nuclear age see a feudal future. We don't even, the whole thing could be ripped to shreds in a second. It could happen tomorrow. 
all going to go up in flames. So why have children? Why do I want to bring children into this painful life? Why do I want to go and do something with my life? Be something, build something, accomplish something, start something, create. Why do I want to do that when it could just be ashes in a second? And so instead, we kind of busy ourselves with what we have to do with um, work or school, what have you. And then we, we look forward to weekends where we can kind of do your vice. Now, I'm talking to a room of Christians, so most of you probably don't have a lot of vices. But the world in general, man, the weekend is the vice mode. This is where we just forget about the boredom of a passive moment to moment in existence, and we actually get to go relieve that pressure and just forget about the fact that this could all end in a second. Um, that's the human condition post-World War II. What in the world? And so then, of course, Christianity is hard to relate to for some people because here is this overarching narrative Wait, wait, there's a past in the beginning God created. How do you know that? Are you sure you believe that? That might make sense at times. You're like, oh, creation is beautiful. Someone must have made that. But then they're like, no, no, no. It's just natural processes. I'm just part of it. And like, this is the way the world's going. Let's, but no, Christians, you believe that? Uh, and that, that God actually came to us in history, in time, in space, touched down on earth in, a, in an actual body that actually happened? It seems sort of like somewhere in the head. Like we just kind of assent to that. Um, that there's a future, that God's taking this whole thing somewhere, that he has a finish, that he has a climax, a grand finale, that he's going to restore and rescue this. That, that, that's that's mind-boggling to the nuclear age thinker. Or or that Christianity has this idea that, no, there are sets of morals and, and values to live by. Um, and the way we treat our bodies, and the way we treat other people's bodies, and the way we think, and the way we talk to one another, and the way we forgive, and do these hard things. And, and, and then the nuclear person's like, mmm, that, you're letting someone else tell you how to live? That's absurd. Life is short. We gotta seize the moment now. Carpe diem, YOLO, what have you, whatever generation you're from. That's the thinking. So Christianity comes across as very irrelevant, very old-fashioned, very, that's not how the world works anymore. But then again, you see the tension because that's what the world needs to rescue them from the fear of the atomic nuclear age, to, to mobilize us into purpose, into meaning, into creativity, into doing something with the world. So is there a future? That's the question. We, we see where we're at. We see what was happening, where we're at. What is the future of Christianity? What is the future of the church? What is it going to look like? That's where I want you to go to John, 1 John, chapter 1. It shouldn't be a surprise or a secret anymore because you have the title behind me. The family of Christ. What the world needs is Family. Now, yes, we have our blood relations, right? You have your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your nieces, your nephews, your sons, your daughters, and your twice removed whatevers. Like, we have those. But even that isn't very solid. Many of us struggle to relate to many, if not most, of the people within that circle. But we also have the nuns, those that associate with nothing, 
They're spiritual exiles. They're the, I'm spiritual but not religious types. There's no home. They kind of flutter from this idea to that idea. Accumulating beliefs. So that they don't have to be underneath the rulership of some religion, but I can have, it's meism. A God I can fit in my pocket, comfort me when I'm down. Allow me to do this when I'm feeling like I need a high. Be a forgiving and understanding. I don't know, whatever. Like just this collab, cake batter God thing. Spiritual but not religious. Um, We have a lot of homelessness, spiritual homelessness. People that would love to be like the prodigal son, to know that they can turn and find a father whose arms are already open before the father even saw them turn. A table where Jesus is sitting, despite the religious authority saying you shouldn't do that, with a seat open at the table with the hot food waiting for you. We have a world of people who need a home, who need a family. We are isolating ourselves out of fear, of course, in the nuclear age, but also through technology. Technology is wedging, making us more and more independent and less and less needful on one another. There's, there's less and less connection. There's less and less real. Everything's cyber. Everything's in our head. Everything's stored in the cloud. Like, we just want somewhere in life actual contact, actual down-to-earth organic humanity. Yes, it's messy and it's clunky and it's awkward and sometimes we don't have the proper social skills with people, but it, there's a part of us that yearns. We feel empty without it. Like we can't just let the, the, pro, the progressivism of technology and everything just kind of have its way. Like Christianity needs to be the one to say, hey, why don't we just stop like trying to be trendy like everyone else for a moment and just be authentic? Be human, be messy. Um, let's strip away the things of life that are numbing us and just say, wow, there's a person next to me. They don't smell as good as my fake environmentally controlled bedroom, but um, this is real. <laughs> sorry. Someone's feeling very self conscious right now. I'm sorry for that. Um, So we have John, the oldest living apostle. He's old. We don't know exactly how old when he writes these, but most people think these are all, all his writings are toward the end of his life. He's had 60 years. That's twice my life to think upon what he saw, heard, smelled, touched, and witnessed and felt and experienced in the life of Jesus. And now we have a sage giving us his meditations on that life. And so he writes in John, 1 John 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Hey, we experienced something and we want you to experience experience it too. But this wasn't just an experience like I saw it on a movie. Like, wow, that's a great experience. Come experience it with me. Come see The Last Jedi with me. It wasn't like that. 
It was like I smelled it, heard it, saw it, tasted, touched. It was real. And it, and it turned on my senses. It was historical. It was organic. It was fleshly. I want you to experience that too. And so verse 4, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's only fun when we can share it together. But then chapter 2, go forward to chapter 2, verse 12. So he's calling people to come experience this in a way that supersedes the way we experience a lot of things. And then in 2.12, he talks to the family. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Here he's dealing with all kinds of people in the church John's writing to. The children are probably referring, because earlier in the letter he talks about um, the whole church. You are the dear children. The children probably just refers to all of God's children. But then he addresses the fathers and the young men, the mothers and the young girls. And these perhaps are not generationally different, but where they are at in their walks with Christ difference. The fathers, the mothers, you are the ones who've been walking with Christ the longest. You are the ones who are there for the mentors. You are the ones who need to take somebody under your experience and wisdom and shepherd them in this life of Christ. Bring them into this family. Give them purpose. Teach them lessons and wisdom and how to live this Christian life in a postmodern nuclear world. That's why he says in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Mothers, fathers, you know him from the beginning of your walk with Christ. You've known him this whole time personally. Be the patriarchs and matriarchs of the family. Own your calling. Rather than just, you know, hey, it's all going to burn. Let's passively wait. I'm writing to you young men. So those are those who have just come to Christ, the young men, the young women who are new in the faith because you have overcome the evil one. When you come to Christ, you overcome Satan. Done. He lost you. That's great. You, I'm writing to you because you just overcame him. You need to know, he goes, he repeats to him now at the end of 14, that you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You need to stick with what you just received. You need to listen to your mothers and fathers because they know how to bring you up and they'll help you survive in this postmodern world as a Christ follower to be faithful to him. And so John is this elderly man, and he's calling us into this real, organic experience. Not this entertainment show, not just things to believe in your head about God, but this thing to experience, to taste, and to feel, and to know, and to live with your feet and your hands, and to have everyone know their place in the family. That we're going to do this together. That this table is way big enough 
For yes, that son that ran away and that daughter who's the nun or the prodigal. And for the other brothers, the fathers and the mothers who are grumbling. What were these people too? Come on. We've done our dues. No, all of them. There's room at this table and the father's arms are open. The father of all fathers and mothers. And this is the invitation. And this is how Christianity will go forward. It's not by having our lofty teachers sell more, more books and get people to read them and trick them with like the title looking more like a self-help manual. It's not that through that that the world's going to be saved. The church will continue when the church decides to stop deciding between two extremes and just be a family. The two extremes. Some churches just want to worship God. The world's scary. It's pathetic. It's dark. Don't go sinning. Let's just stay here and worship. God will come and get us in the end. Or the church that says, because it's dark, scary, and there's sinners, let's go save it. Let's go change it. Let's go conquer it for Christ. We don't have to choose between the two. To just be a family and to be what the world should be right here can change the world. Because families come together and then they go to work and school and do their hobbies and hang out with their friends and then they come back together and eat a meal and then they go do that again in and out, in and out, in and out not hamburgers, families <laughs> that and brothers and sisters fathers and mothers, sons and daughters family we have a table every single Sunday night that we come to we're coming to the same table with Food provided, life given to us from the same source we all have come from and all are rescued by. Jesus the Christ. And so we're going to take communion and we're going to take the blood he spilled for our life, the body that was broken for our life. And we're going to remember that the Father showed us how much he loved us by sending Jesus on the cross with arms open and say, there is room for all at this table. And some people are the nuns that just, I, I'm scared to commit. I just kind of want to do the whole spiritual thing, but not really commit, just kind of keep my toe in the water, keep a pulse on things. Um, but God's saying, I want you to go from a nun to a son, to a daughter. Just plunge into my life that you can experience what John is asking us to experience with and that our joy may be complete.